Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Eric Edmeets. Now, Eric is a gregarious, entertaining, and inspirational speaker. He's spoken professionally in over 20 countries on three core topics, business, health and wellness, and relationships. Now, after a miraculous turnaround of his own health, Eric became fascinated with nutrition and health and wellness, and his curiosity about human health led him on an Indiana Jones-like adventure around the world, including in the deep African bush with some of the last nomadic people on the earth. Eric's been visiting, living with, and studying the Hasta people for over 10 years and really enjoyed sharing their insights into health, relationships, and parenting, including how to successfully navigate the evolutionary differences between men and women. Now, Eric has also had his own relationship ups and downs, and so I'd like to welcome him to the show to talk to us more. So welcome, Eric, to the show. I know I've known you for a very long time. I was just trying to figure out how many years it actually has been that we've known each other. I'm not sure we should admit that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm still still pretending I'm 32, so maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, that would definitely affect that. It would affect that illusion for sure. Absolutely. So thank you for joining us. I'm really excited about this interview because I know you have a wealth of experience across so many different topics. And that's the interesting thing about breakups. And I know a lot of my listeners will be going through some really traumatic times right now with their breakup. And it has a ripple effect across your whole life. Now, I know you're no stranger to a breakup. So what would you say to people right now who are listening, who are in that midst of that trauma from your life experience? I think the one thing that I'd want to say to everybody is, and and it's awfully cliched, but this too shall pass. And it really like the emotions feel incredibly intense and real. And the logistical stuff you have to work out is intense and real. And there will come a day where where happiness becomes the pervasive feeling again. You know, the way I often think about it is is that when somebody goes through something like this, they can have a day with literally no happiness and then another day with literally no happiness. And that starts to become an incredibly desperate feeling. And then one day they have this, you know, they have a moment of happiness. And this is one of the problems with the way our culture deals with stuff like this is that it's almost like they're not supposed to have that happiness yet. You know, it's like they certainly couldn't have that happiness around their ex for sure. I mean, that would be wrong. And they wouldn't want to have too much happiness around their friends because, you know, they're supposed to be in mourning. And so it's almost like we get rewarded for concealing our happiness or or not really allowing it to come out. And my feeling is this, that life is too short for that. And so uh, you look at any given day and cherish whatever happiness, whatever cheerfulness, whatever bliss does come up, even if it feels incongruous, incongruous. Like, and so it comes up. And then what will happen is there'll be a day where it crosses over, where it was like, instead of being a sad and recovering person with occasional moments of happiness, you will become a happy person who's still recovering. And then you'll become a happy person who's recovered. Brilliant. I love that. And people listening, I guess, will see how successful you've been in life and think, well, maybe it's easy for you to say that. But I know it hasn't always been like that. You know, your life hasn't always been as successful and happy. And there's been lots of ups and downs. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Because it is so inspiring. Well, Sarah, my first divorce took place when I was 11. (laughs) (laughs) Only it was my parents. And, And, you know, like I remember at 11 having an incredible consciousness about what was going on. I think that it's very interesting to look at how children process divorce at different ages. And at, at 11, I was very knowledgeable about why it was happening. And, and I was in agreement that it should happen. I was in full support of my mother for making it happen. My my father was still a practicing alcoholic. I often joke that I don't know why they call it practicing because he'd had enough practice as far as I could tell, <laughs> you know. And so I was in full support of my mom uh, making that decision. But then, you know, I would say that my parents weren't necessarily the best like uh, role models for uh, for marriage. And I I don't mean that as a criticism. I think anybody who gets married in their 20s is definitely taking an interesting experiment. You know, (laughs) you barely even know yourself at 20, how you're going to 
but they were a really good role model for divorce. I mean, sure, they had some icky stuff and sure they, you know, it was difficult for a little while. And, and yes, occasionally they would express displeasure about each other in front of us, which is a rule that I, I think that one should not violate. But I'm glad that they did do that because every now and again, my mom might have a bit of a thing about my dad or my dad might have a thing about my mom. And at 11, 12 years old, here's what I knew. I knew that any time one of my parents did that, I just judged the one who was doing it and not the one that was <laughs> like, wow, if my mom powerful. said something yucky about my dad, I never believed her. I immediately judged her for that. And my dad did it to my mom. And it was, so I just made this rule. There's no point. Kids are going to see through all that stuff anyway. Yeah. But once they got through that, which was very short lived and I don't blame them for it. Of course, people are angry and disappointed. But after that, they become incredibly good friends. You know, they'd get on the phone and they'd talk and they'd co-parent and really became functional. And in fact, at one point, my mom was working for South African breweries and traveling all over Africa and Asia. And she had dogs and a garden and my dad was writing a book. So she said to my dad, why don't you come and look after my dogs in my garden, you know, in South Africa? And her, you know, we're, we're originally from South Africa. And, um, and so he went to house sit with her for about six months or so. And that turned into nine years. Wow. Like literally they lived in the same house in their own rooms in their own wings of the house for nine years. And, you know, and they, they had their own personal lives and, and they, they, they just formed a really great friendship. And so I think where they could have been made, let's say better role models in marriage, they were phenomenal role models in divorce. How was that then growing up with your mom and dad separated and divorced, but living in the same place? How does that impact your view? Uh, it was irritating. It was irritating. You're like, listen, guys, you've, you lost your right to cope. Like as a kid, they'd be like, well, your mother and I think, no, 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 no. There's no mother and I, you guys got a divorce. I don't want to hear your mother and I crap. Like as a kid, it was kind of annoying that they rejoined forces again. It was yeah. like, well, we managed to divide and conquer here. And now, now, no, I, I, I'm teasing. I really value that they're friends. I really value that they, to this day, probably speak every week to this day. And, you know, and my dad's in, in a long-term relationship that he's been in for many, many years. There's none of that. It's just, they're very, very good friends. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Wow. And so how's that impacted your relationships? Do you think, do you have a, well, are you more comfortable with that breaking up or how does that play you out? Know, you? Um, I think what a lot of kids do is they take a look at their parents' behavior and they either become it or they become the antithesis. Like oh. it's, it's black and white. My dad smokes, so I'm a smoker or my dad smokes, so I'll never smoke. Like it's all <laughs> black and white. And I, I took a, a different view than that. I, I've looked at my my parents individually and 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 as parents. And what I've really tried to do is like, I'm not a smoker. My dad was, but at the same time, there were many great things about my dad as well. And I and and so I think what I've tried to do from that process is I've learned from what I perceive to be the mistake. So as a really good example, I you know my first wife and I separated when our little boy was about not even two years old. And, and it was a very odd separation because we weren't separating so much because our marriage had fallen apart. We were separating because we were geographically separated. We were, we were in a situation where she no longer wanted to live in England and I, I had a business and I had obligations. And so it was a little bit complicated, but at the same time, the divorce process was incredibly difficult and painful. Of course, we had custody issues across national boundaries and that's, that was very difficult, but one thing that I stuck to my guns about very firmly was I never said anything derogatory about his mom to him ever. I just refused to do that. Even if I felt it was true, even if I was angry in the moment, I just wouldn't do it. And, and I mean, I went so far as that if she was phoning and I, I might be incredibly annoyed and there were things uh, in the legal process that she did that I thought were unconscionable at the time. I was trying to be so fair and I felt like she wasn't. That's my feeling at the time. It's, you know, and so she would call me and I think if he had not been there, I'd been like, what do you want? You know, like I, mm. I was, you know, what do you want? Like, get your lawyer to call me. I don't want to talk to you. But if he was there, I'd be like, hey, how are you? I really would make the effort to be uh, gregarious and connected. And I, I did the same thing in reverse is that, you know, she also had a hard time, say, uh, communicating effectively or being friendly around me. And in, the, in those early days, it was difficult. And so one of the things that I did was um, I, I knew that sushi was like her favorite food. And so when I had my visit days, I would say, well, I don't really want to drop him. I picked him up. So you, you have to come pick him up for me. Fair deal. So here's the address that we are. And I would go into his and sushi was her favorite. So I'd order sushi. And I'd order a little too much and then she'd get there 
and there'd be this sushi. And so she'd end up at the table with me and our son eating sushi. And so we would end up having, you know, friendly discourse. And we became really quite respectful, good friends. She's twice engaged me to come and speak at the schools that she teaches at. Wow. You know, so yeah. I think that one of the reasons that she and I have been able to develop that is for me that my parents provided a good role model for both of us. As far as I know, her parents didn't speak for something like 20 years after their divorce. And I, that to me is just, I couldn't have it that way. I wouldn't want it that way. So I know a lot of my listeners will be really loving what you're saying, because in an ideal world, to be amicable with your ex would be the best way forward. But what's your advice? And I know that you, this is advice that, you know, I'm sure you give in business as well as with friends and your own experience. But when someone really is very difficult to deal with and you're trying to be reasonable, and I know you, I've known you for many, many years, you are very kind, very respectful. And, you know, I can, I've seen you manage conflict in a way that I've never seen anyone else do it. Like you are an expert at dialing down those negative emotions with that. So what advice would you give if people are saying, well, yeah, but I just don't seem to be able to get on with this person. They're hell bent on making my life difficult. It's tough. There are people that are like that. There's a couple of different thoughts I have. The one is this, that uh, people re will repeat any behavior you reward. So mm. any behavior you reward, they will repeat. So for example, if you have an ex and um, let's say uh, they call you and say, listen, I want custody on, I, I'd like to have visitation on Thursday, even though it's not my normal time. And you go, you know, we've got plans that day. Well, geez, you know, da, 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 da. And, they, and, and then you go, okay, okay, you can have it. Well, you've rewarded that behavior and you've now set the tone for that the way they're always going to want to get what they want from you. And so, right. uh, and then this is true in parenting. This is true in relationship. This is true in post-relationship. And this is true in business. If you ever give somebody what they want, you are automatically rewarding whatever method they use to get it from you. Mm. And, and, I, and so that means that you somehow have to balance this being, you know, say flexible, gregarious, open-minded, generous with also having boundaries. And, you know, let me describe it from a parenting perspective. I, I, a cute situation here. I, 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 Zoe likes to sit up on the kitchen counter and watch me cook. And, and, uh, and, you know, She's we have like, what's that? She's adorable, by the way. Oh, she really is. She really is. And so <laughs> she's up on the counter and she's watching and stuff. And then I realized she hasn't had water in a little while. And we don't really give, you know, you know, wild fit and sugar and stuff. So we don't really give her um, juice very often, not even fresh squeezed juice, but sometimes we'll give her fresh squeezed um, pineapple juice, but it's watered down heavily. It's, it, you know, it's, it's really just flavored water. But anyway, I'm headed off to the fridge to go get her one. And as I walk toward the fridge, she sees me heading toward the fridge, has no idea what I'm planning to do but knows that I'm cooking. So I'm probably just grabbing something out of the fridge for cooking, right? And then she goes, I want a juice. And I, I turn around and go, oh no. And she goes, what? And I go, well, I was getting you a juice, but have I ever gotten you anything when you whine for it? She goes, no. <laughs> and I'm like, well, so now I can't get you one. That's not how we ask for stuff. And now she loses it. I mean, loses it, right? Like, yeah, to the point that I now have, I have to take her off the counter, put her back down on the floor. Now she's lying on the floor screaming. And of course, this is the moment of truth, right? Victor yeah. Frankel says, between stimulus and response, there is a moment where all your freedom is created. Well, in parenting, that could never be more true than in this moment. Because the easiest thing to do, go, okay, 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 I'll get you the juice. But instead, I just sat there and let her cry it out. And, and I talked with her and then I just said, listen, I want to give you that juice so badly. How have you gotten juice in the past? What do you, what do you think the best way to get the juice is? And she says, she goes, she does this. She goes, she sits up. Daddy, can I please have a juice? Yes, mm -hmm. my love. And Aww. I pick her up and put her on the air. Now, I know there, I've, I've shared this, um, you know, on stage a couple of times and every now and again, somebody will go, you're talking about repressing of emotions. No, listen to the story. I sat on the floor with her and I let her cry it out. I, I, I'm not against her having all the emotions in the world. What I want to be clear is that the difference between the expression of an emotion and the usage of the emotion is a manipulative tool. Now, mm. I'm describing this in parent daughter terms because I believe that it exactly the same in, in exits. It's the same process. If your ex has a meltdown or a tantrum or is manipulative or uses their temper, raises their voice, then that's exactly the moment where you're like, well, I, I'm out. I'm out. I can't, can't give you what you want at this point. We, when we're back to respectful, we can have it. And, and, and you got to have boundaries. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I also love the fact that I know you're parenting, co-parenting at the moment, your daughter, and you are an amazing single dad. 
and single parent with her. And I watch you on an Instagram, the videos you post with her, and they're just so amazing. What do you think is the key to being a single parent? Because I know a lot of people will be out there thinking it's scary being a single parent. It's terrifying. How do you manage? Because you do such an awesome job. You know, um, mystery and curiosity and fascination and focus. You know, I, 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 um, I didn't really have the opportunity with my son to have these moments because, because of the geographic spread. It's, it's a longer story, but you know, he ended up growing up in Canada while I was living in England. And so I really didn't have the opportunity, but what that showed me was a different opportunity. And that was to have intensive time. And, and so because I couldn't have access every day or, you know, I couldn't have that, what I would do instead is create events that would be particularly intensive. So we would go somewhere for a week. We would go fishing and we would go, I took him to the Kruger National Park when he was nine years old. I took him for an entire month in the Kruger National Park, full month of safari. You know, so uh, what that taught me was intensity of parenting because I would turn everything else off. I would turn off business. I, you know, I had what we call business freedom. I didn't have, my company didn't need me to be there after a point like for, you know, I could go be away for a few weeks without having to answer emails and text messages all the time. So it taught me this thing about intensity of parenting. And so now I'm just applying intensity of parenting in the circumstance I have now. I have Zoe roughly half the time. And so when I'm with her, I like, I really avoid meetings and work. Like for example, I, it's Zoe week right now, but she's at school. So it's okay for me to do the, the podcasts and the interviews, but I very rarely allow that stuff to cross over into my time with her because she's just too magical. And listen, 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 if there's one thing that I have not quite unique, unique means one of a kind. I know it's not unique, but I have a special perspective on parenting and that's this. I have a 23 year old son and a four year old girl. And when you spread your children out that far, you really, really see with extra decades of wisdom, what you screwed up or what you did well, or, you know, what have you. And, and so everybody's like, oh, what's your favorite age? I want to tell you my favorite age. My favorite age is the right now. Because mm. because my favorite age when she was six months old was six months old. Oh my God, six months old. Isn't that amazing? That just this little ball of love and jelly and cuddly and little noises. And then, but then, oh, my next favorite age is like a year when they start walking. And we took her to this preschool just before she was walking. They said, well, she's only allowed to go to the preschool when she starts walking. But then she charmed the owner of the preschool so much. The preschool owner said, you know what? She could be the exception. Guess what? Two days later, she's walking because she's around all these kids that are walking. That's my favorite. But then my next favorite age, oh my God, two and a half. Like when the little sentence is three, what an incredible. And so my view is this, they are all the most incredible age. So you got to enjoy them every single time. And so when people have a hard time with that, you know, I guess what I would suggest is this, is try to construct your life in such a way that you can be a fully focused parent when you can be and, and enjoy it as best you can and, and don't half-ass it. And frankly, if you're going to half-ass it, get a babysitter and let the babysitter have that moment. I never want Zoe ever to have the feeling that being with her is something that I'm not choosing. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you feel about expressing emotions? Because I know that people find it very difficult when they're going through a breakup. Some people, I've got a client at the moment who's crying a lot of the time around her children. What's your opinion on that? Because obviously there's a there's an argument for suppressing your emotions, but then also acknowledging emotions, as you talked about earlier. This is a really tough one. And there's a real difficult call to personal accountability and honesty. And there's a difference between expressing emotions because they need to be expressed expressing emotions because they're going to give you something you're using them to get something from somebody or because you're outright manipulating and the problem is that many times we don't even know when we're in the depth of our pain we don't even know which one we're in and so my general rule uh, would be not to express that stuff in front of the children um, during that time and one of the reasons is is that if one parent husband or wife, father or mother expresses a huge amount of pain and crying in front of the children all the time, the children are going to deduce potentially from that, that the other parent is the cause. And the other parent is not the cause, even when the other parent is the cause, because it's something that was co-created. And so it's crying uncontrollably, incessantly in front of your children is a manipulative even if you don't intend it that way, ends up being a manipulative action to alienate the other parent. And I don't think that it means you can never do it, but I think here's the deal. Here, here's Maybe this is the answer, Sarah. Maybe this is it. Yeah. If you can control it, then do. 
Mm. If you can't, then it must be genuine. And, and I can give you an example. I, I remember vividly the first time I left Daniel in Canada, knowing I had lost, knowing I couldn't win him back, knowing that I'd not prevailed in that part of the legal thing and I was in trouble. And I remember leaving Canada and I was in the driveway in Collingwood, Ontario of my ex-in-law's house. And I was there saying goodbye to Daniel. And I had a pair of, funny enough, weirdly, I remember it so clearly, these exact same sunglasses. I had a pair of these exact same like Ray-Ban Clubmasters on my face. And the reason I was wearing them was that I didn't want him to see my eyes. Aww. I didn't want him to see my eyes because I knew they were red and I knew they were brimming with tears. And I just couldn't, I didn't want him to see that. Not because mm -hmm. I was hiding in some misguided sense of masculinity means not crying. No, no, I'm all for crying. But I knew that in that moment, my tears and my leaving would either be something that he might take on personally as his own fault because he knew it was because I was leaving or that he might blame his mother. And so I kept the glasses on because I didn't want him to see that at that point. And I couldn't control it. It was beyond my capacity for control. And uh, one of the tears spilled down my cheek and got past the rim of the glasses and he saw it. And I remember he's 18 months old. He goes, daddy, did you hurt yourself? Oh, wow. And then I just lost it. I had to get in the car and just go, I'm going to lose it now. <laughs> I just got in the car and, and I got to the airport and I went through my first flight, which was just Toronto to Chicago. I cried through the entire flight. I cried in the airport. When I was checking in, the woman says, are you okay to fly? Like I couldn't even check in. I, I got on the plane and I finally stopped crying because I fell asleep. And wow. so when the, when the emotion is that powerful, of course, express it, you, you have to, you can't suppress, but if you can control it, then I suggest that that indicates potentially that it's not pure expression and that it might be also communication. And if it is about communication, you got to be damn careful about what you're communicating. Yeah. Really good advice. A beautiful story. I think a lot of people who are going through those emotions will turn to other things to suppress. I call it stuffing down your emotions. So they might eat more or start drinking more than they normally would. Now I know- Or Netflixing. It, yeah, Netflixing, yeah. And I just wonder how you think that that impacts on the level of stress that you're already going through. I know you're with your company, Wildfit. You must see a lot of people who are going through breakups and either have put on a lot of weight or are using food as a crutch in some way. What, what would your advice be there? It's a terrible cycle, unfortunately, because um, what a lot of people don't really recognize is that the vast majority of the drugs that people are being prescribed to manage their emotions are unnecessary if you're metabolically healthy. They don't get that, that if you're actually nutritionally topped up, hydrated well, breathing well, and have healthy metabolism, you do not need those drugs in most cases. And by the way, I challenge anybody to go and ask their psychiatrist that question and I'll bet you he'll agree with me or she'll agree with me. I'll bet you. But of course, the problem is you walk in and go, I'm feeling terrible. And they're like, well, you know, you should probably eat this. And no, just give me the pill. And that's unfortunately where we're at. So I want to draw the line between a drug and a medicine. Medicine is you're really having a hard time snapping out of it. And you decide to watch a comedy show on Netflix. And you decide to watch an hour or two of comedy just to get your, and you get a friend over and you laugh. That's medicine. Yeah. But if you're feeling depressed and you dial in the Ozarks, <laughs> that's not medicine. That's just like a show dedicated to creating adrenaline in your body. It's like, you may as well be watching The Walking Dead as far as I can tell. And so when you're watching it because, and, and a lot of times people do this, they'll go watch something that's deplorably scary or stressful or anxiety raising. And they do that because then they come back to their life and go, oh, well, at least my life's not as bad as his. And, and in fact, I remember years ago reading this guy, a financial advisor, and he was incredibly good at predicting the markets. And somebody asked him, what's your, Tony Robbins actually asked him, what's your school? And, you know, how do you do that? How do you predict the markets? And he's like, the guy says, well, he goes, um, I just look at the movies that are coming out. And he goes, the more scary movies are coming, there's definitely a recession on the way. Because as people become more concerned about their lives, they watch scarier stuff to make their lives feel better. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not, by the way, if that's any indication now, we're watching end of the worlds. We're yeah. like, obviously people are freaking out. I feel like there's a difference between a drug and a medicine. And if you're watching the show as a complete anesthetic, you're, you're, then it's a drug. If you're watching the show to actually lift your spirits, then, then it's a medicine. I suggest the same with food. If somebody sits down and eats a tub of ice cream, that's drugging out. But if somebody sits down and eats, you know, a slice of watermelon, that's uh, medicine. If they go out for a really nice, like, you know, wild, assuming they're not vegan and they go out and eat a really nice piece of like, you know, wild caught fish and, and it's nicely grilled and it has a good side of broccoli with it, that's medicine. And so I think that it's okay to eat food as medicine, but the minute we start eating it as a drug, there's a bunch of challenges. First thing is, 
here's how I think about emotions. There are no bad emotions. There are none. There are no, mm. I, I do this on uh, workshops. I go, okay, everybody tell me the good emotions, joy, cheerfulness, love, peace, gratitude, appreciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Tell me the bad emotions, guilt, shame, resentment, anger. You're like, no, they're not, those are not bad emotions. Those are emotions that we find displeasurable. We, we, we don't like them, but they're, they're our greatest teachers. Uh, happiness doesn't really teach you a lot. It's like a little reward, but shame shows you, wow, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Mm. And the trouble for us is the minute we start feeling those feelings, if we anesthetize them away, we don't get the lesson. We don't get the lesson. Like, let's say, sorry, I'm sure you've never done this, but let's say in divorce, you say some nasty shit at some point to somebody. Let, let's just say, and, and then you walk away and go, oh, I'm better than that, right? I'm yeah, better than absolutely. that. Then if you go and the shame starts overwhelming you, and the next thing you know, you're eating a donut or you're watching Netflix so that you don't have to feel the emotion. You are robbing yourself of the opportunity to go. What you really should be doing, and this is the tough part, right? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I, I think I'm going to vomit. And you call the ex and you go, hello, that thing I said, I'm sorry. I know. I, I don't want to talk about it. I'm sorry. I was a bit of a jerk. I'm sorry. Bye-bye. And you don't wait for an acceptance or anything. But you know what's crazy? The pain of apology in a situation like that is so severe. You will not do that behavior again. And I think that what we too often do is we anesthetize our emotions away and rob ourselves of the greatest lesson that that emotion might have been able to give us in that moment. And I, so I think mm. we've got to feel the emotions and then we got to ask what they're teaching us. What are we learning from it? Yeah. I mean, heartbreak is obviously one of the most common uh, emotions that people listening in are probably feeling right now. So it's difficult, isn't it? When you're stuck in heartbreak and you don't really understand why they've left or why they've done this to you, your brain is asking you a lot of disempowering questions at this point. Like, why aren't I good enough? Why don't they love me? How then, when you're turning to food, can you go, oh, I'm going to change this? What would be your advice? This is a tough question because it, I can explain it and I can describe it, but whether somebody can apply it by themselves without help and support, that's a tough part. But mm. in a very real sense, I think about it like this. Let's imagine that you and I are in London and you and I have made the decision that we're going to drive to where's really far. I mean, really far. Like I'm talking Canada distances, not your British distances. Like let's say we're going to go to Moscow. Okay. We're going to go to okay. Moscow in the car. So what are we going to do before we go? Top up the tires. We're going to check that we've got antifreeze. It's November and we're going to Moscow. You know, we're going to check the antifreeze. You know, we're yeah. going to get the brake fluid. We're going to get good gas, change the oil, make sure the oil is good. We're going to take care of all the car's needs. And if we take care of all the car's needs, then we're going to have a more pleasurable and safer journey to Moscow. Yes. Yeah. And so what I think that is really insane is that people have it all backwards with food. They reward, sorry, this is really deep stuff and I'm, I'm hoping it can completely and radically change somebody's life. But I really mean that. If we're about to go on an incredibly difficult journey, like divorce, then we got to look at the vehicle that we're in and we got to mm. figure out what its needs are. And then we got to make sure that we meet those vehicles needs at the very best, more than ever before, because this is going to be the toughest, longest drive, the bumpiest roads, the toughest conditions, the harshest weather. So we got to make sure that there's antifreeze. We got to make sure that there is not sugar in the tank. You put sugar in a gas tank, that car's dead. You got to make sure that the oil's freshly changed. You got to make sure that the car is in top shape for the journey. And so that means that we don't want to scarf down a bucket of popcorn, eat donuts until our ice cream is the chocolate. Those are not the ideal things to be having when you're going through that because they all have an influence that will make depression far easier to access. Every one of them does. So in other words, what we have to be asking ourselves at this moment is I'm in a marathon right now. Listen, the divorce is the ultimate Iron Man. Divorce is the ultimate Iron Man. You and I should co-write a book. Divorce is the ultimate Iron Man. <laughs> you know? you got to train for it. You got to be ready for it. You got to be in shape for it. You want your body to be in peak condition. You want your mind to be in peak condition. Okay, so that's the first thing is that somebody's feeling incredible pain. And in that moment, they go, well, this here ice cream would take that pain away. Let's just be honest for a moment. It'll take the pain away for 10 minutes. Whilst you're eating, probably. Yeah, and then maybe a few minutes after because you've distracted your focus. But then the insulin crush, the fat, the wrong kinds of fat, like that stuff is going to come into you. And an hour later, your body's going to be fighting it like crazy. And, and you're going to run out of energy. And then you're going to have the next wave of depression. And then what are you going to need? 
another ice cream. And okay, here's where it even gets tougher. This is really difficult, but our bodies are set up with natural reward systems, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, like our body knows to reward us for stuff. And so here's the trouble. For some reason, ice cream, chocolate, these things show up as a reward. The, the vast amounts of sugar, the incredible influx of calories, the body goes, oh, this is a, amazing. It's just amazing. And so the body starts releasing all these feel-good chemicals, rewarding you. But it's not rewarding you just for the ice cream. It's rewarding you for getting the ice cream. And how did you get the ice cream? By creating depression. So your body starts learning very quickly that the path to the ice cream is through sadness and depression. So you could be having a perfectly reasonable day and then suddenly your body starts developing a sugar craving or an ice cream or a chocolate craving or a caffeine craving or something like that. But then your body, this is not conscious thought, your body inside's going, hey, uh, I could use an ice cream. How about you? Oh, yeah. Well, the last time we managed to get her to eat ice cream by making her pretty depressed, uh, what do you think? Let's, let's pull it off. How are we going to do that? I know, I know, I know what to do. Hang on, watch this. Why do you think he left you? And then that question pops up into your head. And then you're like, because I'm a loser and I'm not worth it. And I'm this. And then all of a sudden there's the depression. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to get an ice cream. And inside they're going, yahoo, we got the ice cream. We got the ice cream. And so again, any behavior that you reward will repeat. So here's my breakup recovery plan. This, this is it. You only ever reward being in a good mood. Wow. Love it. You only ever reward being in a good mood. And, and, and that means, and I had it. I've been going through my stuff through the lockdown, separation, you know, the custody, all this stuff. By the way, I was on lockdown alone for four months, like by myself. And I had to wrestle with all kinds of stuff. I'm an introvert, but man, I am not that introverted. <laughs> That's <something's laughs> tough. And I remember distinctly one morning, I make this incredible ice cream smoothie thing. I make it. It's outstanding. It's, it's, a, it's a coconut water and almond butter and dates and vin fresh actual Yum. vanilla. Phenomenal. And I make this thing. I was having a crap day. And I walked into the kitchen and I go, oh, look, I've got the dates and I've got the almond butter. I'm going to make it. And then I was like, oh, no, you're not. Because <laughs> you wouldn't make it for Zoe like that. I said, if you can pick up your socks... If you can turn things around, you can have one, but that's it. And I'm like, yeah, well, how do I turn it around? I don't even know how to turn it around. I don't know, but you're going to have to figure out turning it around. So I go, well, guess I could just go for a walk to start with. And I went out for a walk and it was sunny and I got the sun on my skin. And then I started asking myself some better questions. And, and then I, I was like, actually, I'm in a pretty good mood. Walked in and had my smoothie. Like, I know this is, sounds like child psychology, but it is incredibly effective. Wow, I love that. I love that. And I, I know a lot of people listening to this will be going through you know, lockdown 2.0 here in the UK. And it's tough second time around again, you know. And I know that for those of us as well, working from home like you, Eric, I know that you threw yourself into work a lot during your first lockdown there without Zoe around and going through that separation. How do you think it impacts your ability to work and concentrate? Because divorce just doesn't affect your relationship, does it? It affects everything, including work. My experience is that there are two types of people that go through divorce uh, from that perspective. And there's the people who get so distracted that they lose their businesses and lose their jobs and they lose everything. And there's another type of people who are able to control their focus. And they go, well, right now, I may as well just plow all this intense emotion into what I'm doing. And by the way, let's be really clear. The great creations of the world, the great books, the great songs, the great businesses, they've all been born in pain and suffering ultimately. They, there's something about that. Like I gotta tell you, I'm not a poet, but ha I have written some interesting words in the depth of my pain, right? There's something about pain. There's something about it that stimulates creativity. So my feeling is, is that when people are going through divorce, it's actually a phenomenal time to write the next chapter. It's a phenomenal mm -hmm. time to find out who they really are. Look, most people are going through a divorce for one basic reason that I can figure out. The most, the primary basic reason, and that is that they either accepted behavior in somebody else that they weren't prepared to live with long-term, or they accepted behavior in themselves that they weren't prepared to live with long-term, <laughs> and generally both. You yeah. know, So you know, a lot of people go on a date and they go, oh, I like this person so much, but they prefer when my one shoulder is higher. And uh, they also like when I tilt my head to one side. And they also really like when I talk at this volume, they like it a lot better when I talk like this. And they also like when I do this and I'm exaggerating with fake stuff, but that's demonstrative of what people do. They go on a date and they put on a fake version of themselves 
And by the third date, the person who's fallen in love with them has fallen in love with the fake version of themselves. And so at some point in time, the two fake people fade away and the real people show up. It's like, what? I didn't know you didn't put your shoulder up like that all the time. Like, and, and if they can't navigate that moment, then they end up, you know, in a divorce in one way or the other. I know I'm oversimplifying it. There's a million other things that are going on, but this is my rough version. And so the minute you're going through the divorce phase, one of the things I suggest is that you do personal aura cleaning yoga. You stretch in every position. You lift both shoulders up. You figure, you, you know, if, if your spouse didn't like the music being on loud in the house, you put on the music loud in the house. If your spouse didn't like it when you left the socks on the ground, you take off your socks and you throw them over your shoulder and go, ha, take that. By the way, that only lasts you about three weeks and you're like, I don't like my socks being on the floor. And then you pick them up yourself anyway. But there's something about using that opportunity to simply be yourself and to do it professionally, to just really go, hey, I, I don't have all the distraction that I had before. Look, one of the things I've come to realize for a lot of people in divorce is this. They put a significant amount of mental pressure into, into trying to manage the expectations of the other person. And for a lot of us, once we're out of that divorce, once we're out of that relationship, if we could learn to take that same mental pressure, that same mental acuity and apply it to our businesses, we would explode. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us are, we're putting a huge amount of our mental resource into managing dysfunction. And, and as soon as that dysfunction is not part of your life anymore, okay, you still have to navigate a divorce, but that you can do it moment by moment. You're not living with it. And so yeah. now take that tremendous horsepower and apply it to your profession, I think. Absolutely. And I your agree. hobbies and your fitness. Yeah. And also looking back at that point then, when you've come out of that relationship, and I know dating for a lot of people is a terrifying concept. I don't know how you're feeling about dating now, but like dating is, is when you come out and maybe you've been in a long-term relationship and the thought of dating apps or meeting someone new or getting naked with someone again that you, you know, hasn't been used to you and you don't know them is terrifying. So what's your advice for getting back out there and having the confidence that, you know, maybe if you've been betrayed, trust is an issue for you. How do you overcome those things to be able to move forward? The first thing is to recognize that it's just as scary for the other person. Mm. That, that's the first thing to recognize. It's scary for everybody. It just is. And so if you decide to make it your mission, you know, your purpose or your intention to help the other person not feel that fear, then you are no longer thinking about your own anymore. And, and then that person likely is doing the same thing for you anyway. I mean, the fact is, is that everybody, I mean, I learned a great lesson about body image stuff from a woman that I a mostly platonic friendship with for four days in Bali, like a years and years ago, 20 years ago. And what happened was we'd met dancing with a bunch of friends. And so we just hung out for the next, you know, uh, four or five days. And at one point we were in the pool, she and I, and uh, then our lunch arrived. We were just going to get up and sit by the pool and have lunch and the lunch arrived. And so I got to the ladder of the pool to let her and I stood to the side, like she's got a, you know, I'm ladies first, whatever. Yeah. And she goes, nope. <laughs> what? And she goes, there ain't no way I'm going up that ladder with you behind me. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I said, okay. I went up first, you know, and, but Sarah, why that story is even funnier is this woman was, um, I want to be careful in how I say this to really make sure I get the meaning correct. She was stereotypically beautiful. So she was also very energetically beautiful as a person, but she was also genetically gifted. She was incredibly beautiful by, say, magazine standards. And she'd been mm. on the cover of Vogue magazine twice, just wow. to prove the point. Okay. So she's a literal supermodel, like a literal supermodel. And she is feeling self-conscious about going up the ladder in front of me. I mean, I'm going to say this. She had one of the nicest bums I've ever seen in my life. Like if she has a problem, what chance do any of us have, right? Mm. And unfortunately, we live in a world now where we reward genetically unlikely women for going on nutritionally deficient diets, uh, getting uh, magicians to do their makeup, then get another magician to take their pictures and get another magician to touch up the pictures so that the person in the picture doesn't even resemble an actual human being. And then our sisters and our wives and our aunts and our mothers are seeing those pictures out there in the world and comparing themselves to them. And it freaking annoys me. Honestly, I think that if there's anything more than makeup, anything more than makeup, there should be a disclaimer on the photograph that says, this is not an actual human being. <laughs> this is Charlize Theron. And <laughs> here are the artists that made her look like this. She's pretty, no question about it, but come on now. And so as a man, I now recognize that 
the world is set up that way. And by the way, don't think that it's so much different for us. I mean, for us, it's different. You're supposed to, you've got to have muscles and all that stuff. So if we all take on the idea that it's difficult for each other, mm. if we all do that, then the first thing is it can get you out of your own head. You know, you're, you're getting ready to go on that date. You're wondering if it's the one, you, you know, it is because you've shaved that place and you've put the makeup on in that place and you've worn that outfit. So you kind of know, you know, you're open. But at that point, the fear kind of kicks in there. And, and it's the same for guys. Like, here's something women don't think about a whole lot, or maybe you guys think about it a lot more than I think you do. And then you don't talk about it. But size matters to us. Like, you know, and so a guy, there's this huge anxiety that comes up. So if, if women are struggling, then what they should know is that so is the guy. And if guys are struggling, so is she. And if you just come together, both recognizing, and you make it your job to put them at ease, then they're going to feel a lot better to put you at ease and everybody's mm. going to be happier. Hmm. I think that's so true. I think socially in our culture today, there's a lot of striving with social media. You get these false images and it can impact on, you know, if you're already low in confidence because your partner's left you for somebody else, you know, and I've got clients at the moment who've been left for much younger models, you know, and they're just struggling with that. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But trying to put the other person at ease is a great way of, of dialing that down. And another thing I think that keeps people stuck is what is happiness? Because you know, striving to be happy, striving, is, is it meeting that partner? Is it, do you need somebody else to complete you? You know, how do you feel about that? I really believe that happiness is a foundation upon which you can build everything else. So if you don't already have happiness, you shouldn't be dating. If you don't already have happiness, you shouldn't be having children. Happiness should be the base foundation upon which you are building. And by happiness, we can get into a conversation about what happiness means. I'm not talking yeah. cheerfulness. I'm talking about a general sense of contentedness, acceptance, and gratitude about your baseline level of existence. And it, it, that means waking up in the morning, not dreading your life. And, and so if, if you wake up in the morning and you generally have a sense of, uh, of grateful acceptance and you generally have a sense of, of contentedness, then upon that, you can build something. But when people say, you make me happy, I'm like, no, I do not. I do not make you happy. I might make you happier, but wow. I do not make you happy. And, and I think that's a very powerful distinction. Like this idea of, oh, sorry, you complete me. <laughs> then leave. <laughs> if I complete you, you got to know, I got a lot of holes going on here. And if I complete you, it's only a matter of time between our two incompletions line up. And then we're both talking to divorce attorneys. So like, no. And, and, and my metaphor for that is if you think about it, like you get these two incomplete people. Oh, look. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, look, we're complete. And then time starts turning and time starts turning. And oh, look, there's a problem. And the problem's just getting bigger. So no, I don't believe in the split apart. I also don't believe in the one. I, I don't believe in the one. What? Sarah, of course I don't. Play it out with me here. Sorry, I'm going to go logic here. But there are, what are there, 8 billion people on earth? If there's only one, what are the odds you even get to meet that person? Like, they're probably in Shanghai and you're in London and you think you're looking for the one when you're supposed to be in Shanghai looking for the Wong. It's not, the way I feel about it is if you think about it, there must be roughly one person per thousand for you. There must be about one person per thousand because most of us don't know a thousand people and we end up dating a number of people in our lives. And if we're lucky enough, we have some really stellar relationships. So there's got to be about one person per thousand. So you're living in a city like London. There's got to be like a thousand guys walking around that could be the one. And the trouble is, is that the minute we have this idea of the one, which is a great romantic idea, the trouble is also it creates this incredible sense of scarcity. Like, geez, honestly, imagine I tell you, sorry, there's this one person on earth. <laughs> See, there's one. You got to find them. Holy crap. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of scarcity. <laughs> I'm really interested because I know that you've spent a lot of time in the African bush learning from nomads about their relationships. What is it that you've learned from them that you can share with us that would help people right now who are going through heartbreak thinking they're never going to find the one? I have some unpopular ideas about all this stuff. So why don't we just share them? Um, first, let's it. talk. Mostly the reason I've been visiting with the Hadza people, I've been visiting them now for over 10 years and they are hunter gatherers uh, that live nomadic lifestyles. They probably are the closest representation to our ancestral past that we have available on earth today. Without being overly romantic about it, that's probably the best way to put it. And so I mostly went there to go talk to them and learn from them about food, nutrition, health, lifestyle, that kind of stuff, because I believe a lot of the suffering that we have stems from the modern way that we live. But while I've been there, you know, the lessons have been far beyond uh, hunting and gathering and plants and meat and all this. 
because here's an example. I'm sitting there one day and there's a child, walking age child, but barely toddler, maybe they don't know how old their kids are because they don't, they don't have birth certificates, but you know, the the kids walking toward the fire. And one of the adults says like, Oh, has she gone to the fire before? No, this is her first time. Oh, that kind of sucks. Now I'm like, why, why does it suck? Because they're going to let her, they're going to let her walk over to the fire. Wow. And they're going to let her learn because this little girl is going to have to live with a fire every day of her life. Now, of course, we live in a world where our fires are more dangerous. We have electrical circuits and stuff like that. So, of course, I'm not advocating that we let our children run out into the street and learn the lesson. What I'm suggesting is there's a truth that we can learn from that and then try to apply it in our lives. And so I've come to realize the way a lot of people see parenting is that parenting is like the studious job of an adult to remove all opportunities for spiritual growth from their children. (laughs) No, don't do that. That'll hurt you. No, you don't want to be an actor. That never works. Oh, don't climb up there. It's too high. And so when you look at the Bushmen and, and the way they raise their children, they actually culturally don't regard children as children. They regard them as small people. So they will assist them relative to their strength and size, but they don't try to tell them how to live. And so the kids have to eke out their own life. And guess what? In a, in a world where you don't have fallback, they don't have any version of socialism. If, if you're not a good hunter, if you're not a good gatherer, you just die. You have to become a functional human being. So if your real goal is to raise functional human beings, then you got to let them. You got to let them make mistakes. You got to let them try stuff. And you got to balance how far you're going to allow consequences to stretch. And My feeling is that most of us are not at risk of allowing consequences that are too big. Most of us are not allowing enough consequence, I think. Now, then what did we learn about male-female dynamics? Here's my next unpopular opinion, and that is that I think that we rely too heavily upon our spouse for too much of our completion as human beings. We think we're going to go meet somebody and now we're all going to like going to the same movies all the time. And we're going to like going to the same activities all the time. We're going to like going to all the same meals all the time. We're going to have the same sexual proclivities. We're going to have the same conversational interests. We're going to have the same political alignments. I mean, honest to goodness now, like the odds of you meeting that one person, maybe there is only one and you're looking at them in the mirror. What I believe that we're supposed to be doing here is finding somebody that is our ultimate companion that we believe that we would be able to raise children with if that's important to us, that we believe is going to have a lot of fun, but that is also a standalone human being that is fully capable of being their own selves and having their own opinions, and that you should be able to do that very same thing. And I think that these days, we just become overly dependent and codependent. We're married into this idea that we're supposed to find this one person, and we're supposed to do everything with them, and we're supposed to enjoy everything with them. And you know, no, men have to have men's times, and women have to have women's times. And, and by the way, again, unpopular, I'm going to blame women for this one a little bit, a little Ooh. bit. I'm going to blame a little bit because I think that what happens is, is that women test men sometimes. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen, but uh, occasionally, no, never. (laughs) Never. (laughs) And so, you know, you've got a man who, let's say he goes out on Thursday nights and he goes bowling with the boys and then they often go out for a drink afterward and so forth. And, And so, you know, one time he comes back at like two in the morning on a Thursday and she's like, honey, you know. I like that you go out with the boys on Thursdays. I, I do. I just, I feel like two is a bit late. I feel like two is a little bit late. And I would really appreciate it if you would be back by midnight. Seems like a reasonable request. Seems quite reasonable. But it is also a slight chiseling of his identity. It's a slight chiseling. And now he has to go and explain to the boys that, well, now my wife wants me to come back at midnight. And it's a slight chiseling of his masculinity as independent. So the problem is, is that because he wants to serve her, and ultimately, most men, I know our behavior <laughs> behavior doesn't demonstrate what I'm about to say, but it's true. Mostly what we're interested in is our wives being happy. Mm. And so when she says that, we're like, oh, look, what's a couple of hours? I'll do it. I'll do it. And in that moment, he's failed. And so I'm joking when I say that I blame the woman because she's supposed to do this. She's supposed to ask and she's supposed to. And and in that moment, I think what he's supposed to say is, I totally hear you and and I'll see. I'll I'll see how it goes at midnight. But if I'm out having fun with the boys, I'm going to be having fun with the boys. And, And I would expect that you would do the same. And then in that moment, she might not be happy in that moment, but in the long term, she's going to respect him, I think. And so I think that we have to have our own independent space. We have to be willing to have boundaries in both directions. We have to be willing to not let ourselves. My little metaphor about this is that I think sometimes it's like women find a man. It's like finding a really nice little pebble on the beach. It's like, I love it. I love this little pebble. But, you know, this little edge is a bit much. I'm going to just take that (laughs) edge off. And over here, there's this little, I'm going to just, and then they just polish him. And if men, listen to me, men, are you listening? 
if you let her polish you into a perfectly round, shiny little marble, she's going to put you in a drawer somewhere and forget about you because mm-hmm. you no longer need polishing. <laughs> like, and by the way, I, I suspect part of what that testing thing is, is that women want to know that you're going to be able to stand up for yourself, that you're going to be willing to stand up and protect the family. And I, when I've seen this with the Hadza, they have such clear gender roles, very clear. It's very, very clear. I, I, John Gray is a very good friend of mine, you know, Mars Venus. And yeah, he and I've talked amazing. ad nauseum about this stuff and compared it. And, you know, one of the things that we found is that at every camp, there are two fires. There's a fire for the men and there's a fire for the women. And they barely even communicate with each other. They I honestly can be there for a week and almost never see them. But paired up ones at night will be together. And, and But in the day, the men are hunting and the women are gathering and they have very clear roles. And by the way, don't suppose that it's some patriarchal abuse of women. No, you want to see that, go visit the Maasai. They they have an incredibly patriarchal and abusive situation relative to women. The Bushmen, it's much more egalitarian. You know, I asked the chief one day, they move, they're nomadic. I go, how do you guys decide when to move? And he goes, the women. Ah. The women are in charge of that. But who's in charge of security? Well, the women are in charge of security on the ground. They move the thorn bushes around and they create it. But who's responsible for the practical application of security at night? The men. So they've got a real clear set of these roles, the masculine and feminine roles. And I happen to quite like that. I realize some people, I know anybody listening from Norway, I've just, they've just unsubscribed from me and they'll never follow me. I get it. But uh, I think there is something to that. When a couple comes together and allows those things to happen, it's beautiful. I think we're seeing a lot of relationship breakdowns at the moment because people are forced to be living together in lockdown. And that is against what they're normally doing, their daily routine of going off to work or going to play golf. Yeah. Is. And then those that changes and the dynamic shifts and it's not not sustainable anymore. But yeah, fascinating. You made some really good observations and comments about that when we did our Thrive Time episode on YouTube. You, I remember you, we were talking about that, like, wow, it used to be like metaphorically, they were off doing their different jobs. Uh, one was or both were, one was hunting, one was gathering, whatever the case might be. But then when they came back, in a sense, absence makes the heart go fonder over the course of the day. But now they're like, poof, on each other's space all the time. And that's that's been challenging. And there's a lot of places. I know you guys are getting ready for another lockdown. Toronto, Canada is thinking about, I think they're going into a full-scale lockdown again. That's tough. Yeah, it is tough. But there are ways to navigate, as you've talked about. I think it's been fascinating. Thank you, Eric, for your time. And thank you for your insights. I love it. No polishing, guys. No polishing your pebbles. You just leave them the way they are. And the good news is there's more than one person out there for all of us. So thank you, Eric. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for everything today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you, however we do it. That's it for today's episode. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Eric's Wild Fit program and experience a radical change to your health and body solely through food psychology, then head on over to check out getwildfit.com forward slash TDC. I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review in iTunes will win the chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day, including exclusive one-on-one coaching with Sara Davison herself. Be sure to head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Sara's gift. Then join us on the next episode.